Hi, this is Jordan Shively. And this is Brock Wilbur. And you're listening to Carrying Into the Void, the podcast where we get together, tell each other about a weird or kind of creepy story we've heard, and then we try to find the silver lining if we can, or flip it around into something that, while probably not positive, will at least be productive. Jordan, what do you have for us this week? So today I am going to be talking about the dancing plague of 1518. (laughs) Have you heard about this one? No, I've not. It sounds like you're making everything up, but that sounds like what the show is. So every week I have a very thinly researched story I've read about and you have no way to prove that it exists. Um, You know what? I should do more checking up on it later. (laughs) (laughs) 14 episodes in, you haven't checked up on a single one of my stories. Well, when no, at least half of them, I've like, especially the one that was in the the weird goddamn tunnel. I did go look at the pictures of that immediately. So pretty soon, if I like think you're not checking up on me, it's going to start becoming like, and this week I'm going to talk about beholders. What are those? That's like a D&D monster. <laughs> but um, I, I like that we've reached the point of like a, an abusive relationship. I am not an abusive relator. It's 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 ghost lighting me. Um, so the dancing plague was, or it's also called the dance epidemic of 1518 was a case of dancing mania that occurred in Strasbourg, Alsace or Alsace in the Holy Roman empire in July of 1518, around 400 people took to dancing for days without rest. And over a period of about one month, some of those affected, they collapsed and even died of heart attack, stroke or exhaustion. Or so the story goes. And before I get into this exact event, I have I want to say that like I during this research, there was I found other more modern, similar like social hysteria um, plagues. Like there was one in Africa. I think it was like in the eighties or the sixties. Um, give about twenty years in between there, but um, <laughs> where it was laughter, where it was these school children who started getting like twenty or thirty of them at a time, and they would laugh until they were sick. And then, like, if some of those school children went to another school because it was becoming like a quarantine thing, they didn't know what was going on. And then that it infected the other groups of school children until it eventually just went away. But people were like laughing until they were like, you know, if you laugh so hard, it hurts. And then you cry and your body shuts down. That was happening. And they had no idea why. So there's been other besides this one plague of 1518, there have been many different like stories of plagues of hysteria or like a dance or a laughter or, or like weeping that seems to infect other people. Um, so the events of this one was in July, 1518, a woman, Mrs. Trophia began a dance in the streets of Strasbourg. This lasted between four to six days, apparently. And within a week, three, 34 other people had joined her. And within a month, there were around 400 dancers, predominantly female. Some of the people were said to have died of a heart attacks, strokes, and a heat exhaustion. One report indicates that for a period, the plague killed around 15 people a day. And these reports are from other people writing books or r- records of this dancing plague. But the city sources, like the city like like um, municipal records, only record the dancing, not the deaths. So the official records 
have no deaths, but all of the ancillary or second person or um, primary source accounts have many deaths associated with this. As this plague got worse and it's like hundreds of people were just not doing anything but dancing 24 hours a day and gathering in these little weird knots of dancers, the nobles went and they sought advice of the physicians who said this is not supernatural, this is not astrological, but instead they said it was hot blood. <laughs> Shit, son, you got hot blood. <laughs> um, but instead of prescribing bleeding, which would be a normal thing for this in that time period, because it's all about, oh, your, your blood's too hot, you need to get some of it out of your body, and then we're going to store it in this jar and then sell it to the guy in the basement. But the authorities encouraged more dancing in... They opened some guild halls in a grain market and made a wooden stage. They thought they could, they would recover if they danced day and night and like danced it out of themselves, you know, like the opposite of Footloose, <laughs> where like the, the city is like, city's like, oh yeah, dancing's the cure for what else this city. Oh my God. And they even paid some musicians to like, like if they're going to be dancing, let's not make this look weird. You know, let's get some musicians on a stage. <laughs> so it looks like, you know. This is a pl- like we planned this oh shit, God. but that strategy, that strategy ended up being a disaster because those policies, when they were applied to the illness, it went into a dramatic growth. You know, it made um, it facilitated the, the psychic, the air quotes, psychic contagion because people were going and watching it and then they would start dancing. Um, and it just kind of went into this huge nightmare scenario that had up to 400 people dancing and supposedly 15 people dying every day. Um, the historian John Waller, however, doesn't believe this. And he states like a marathon runner could not have lasted the intense workout that these people supposedly did hundreds of years ago. Um, so people who are, I mean, I also, I don't know how sure he's a historian, not like a scientist, but I mean, we, our bodies have evolved quite a bit, I think, I mean, and also our life expectancy, right. and we're healthier. So I think like a modern marathon runner is way healthier <laughs> than a peasant or a normal person in 1518. Oh, I guess that's what he's saying is it's the opposite, where like if someone, a healthier modern person couldn't do this, then an unhealthy middle ages person definitely couldn't. Ah, okay. All right. I, I worked it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... so this is this is this is like that that fucking um, witch hill all over oh again. <laughs> the witchwood. <laughs> um, come to this podcast. Watch Jordan puzzle out simple logic on air. Um, so some of the theories, some of the modern theories about this are that it was food po- poisoning caused by psychoactive ergo fungi, which would grow commonly in like rye wheat and. Ergotamine is the main psychoactive product that is in lysergic acid dithalamide, so LSD. I think we all know that, Jordan. That's just something that everyone oh, yeah, knows. Yeah, everyone knows that that rye weed is also part of LSD. Um, but this same fungus was also implicated in some other major historical anomalies like the Salem Witch Trials. But Waller and Lancet, the two main historians who have like really documented this, Say that this th- this is a quote. This theory does not seem tenable, since it is unlikely that those poisoned by ergo or ergot could have danced for days at a time. Nor would any, so many people have reacted to its psychotropic chemicals in the same way. 
The ergotism theory also fails to explain why virtually every outbreak occurred somewhere along the Rhine or the Moselle rivers, areas linked by water, but with quite different climates and crops. Waller speculates that the dancing was a stress-induced psychosis on a mass level, since the region where the people dance was riddled with starvation, disease, and the inhabitants tended to be superstitious. Seven other cases of dancing plague were reported in the same region during the medieval period. So that one makes the most sense to me um, of the first two theories. The one of like, these people are just stressed the fuck out and man, you're looking for anything. It's like, that's like their version of like Netflix and chill or binge watching. It's like, oh man, I'm so stressed. I'm just going to binge dance for the next week, you know, and just like not think about the things I need to do. (laughs) Hey girl, you want to come over and haunted rave and sweat? (laughs) Um, th- it's also, they think this mass hysteria could have been part of like a psychogenic movement disorder where it's, um, basically like a type of stress that brings on like, um, what's it called when you have seizures? Epilepsy? Epilepsy. Yeah. A, like a very odd form of epilepsy where like the body is comprised of random and intricate unintentional movements that flip from body part to body part. So they're saying it might have been like this stress-induced, like um, mass his- psychogenic illness that then produced this jerking epilepsy that looked like dancing. And um, this has also been called Saint Vitus's dance or Saint John's dance or Tarantism. And it was labeled in the Middle Ages. And it was those are what they called all these different dancing manias at the time of the plague. So, so a communicable dance disease of epilepsy that affected people over a large region. This is a theory. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and some speculate that this is also the genesis or the basis to fairy tales that have, such as the Pied Piper of Hamelin or the Twelve Dancing Princesses in Brothers Grimm. The Pied Piper played his flute and the music was so irresistible that children were compelled to follow him and dance all the way. And this is speculated that this is just an allegory for the dancing plagues. And there was a story about a group of like 200 children who danced between these two, who did the dancing plague between these two German cities. And then all of a sudden it was gone and they all kind of had to wander home. Jesus Christ. So it's very possible that someone see, if you look, you're walking down, leading your donkey to market and you come across a stream of 200 twitching, jerking children dancing trance light down the road, you might come up with a story like the Pied Piper of Hamelin. And all of this can only lead me to the fact that the world is a place of chaos. All around us, stressors seep into our subconscious and pound through our veins. They crush us down. They spring from their hiding places when we are at our weakest, and they gather in the midnight hours. They sharpen their teeth on the frames of our sleepless beds and spread their clammy hands on our fevered brows. But deep inside you, beyond the pounding drums of stress, past the crimson chorus that is in your fevered blood, is another song. This one comes from your bones. This one slithers its way up into your heart so dark and true. This song cuts through the haze you have been living in and you follow it. Your feet smash into the ground. Your limbs swing wild and free. You are the feral child of whatever street you just happen to be on. And you move to no other command than the one that has slept within your bones. 
The music has told you one thing, though, and of that you are sure. You are finally awake after a long and deadening slumber, and you have no plans of ever going back. So that was The Dancing Plague. I thought you didn't want to say what this one was, because if you'd said Pied Piper at the start, I would have been like, odd, odd choice. See, I think the Pied Piper could have its own episode and like really break down into more like occult stuff that also surrounds the idea of the Piper and the idea of the, like the small people of the Netherlands and Iceland that live inside of like the Tulpas and stuff. So I think that could have a, a whole episode of small people that lure you into mountains. You're right. A transmutable skanking <laughs> is its own different thing. Oh my God. Oh God. And that was our last episode ever, <laughs> folks. Um, we Skanking was the word that was going to end the show. Oh, wow. The magic word. We selected it at random before we started. And there it goes. <laughs> skanking. Wait, not really, right? So what do you have this week? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> ah, boy. Uh, the real word that ends the show forever is scalaluya. Boy, no one will ever say that, actually. Oh, or does it count that you said it? No, it doesn't. Oh, thank God. Uh, so I'm all right. What's your, what's your my story? story is uh, Momo. OK, uh, which is I, I'll start out. I'll differentiate it from uh, there is Momo. That is a creature that is like a, a slender man level, like meme sort of thing. Uh, that is a bird with a woman's face. And the face has this sort of Glasgow smile sort of element about it. Uh, this is not that one. Cool. Cool. This is not that one. Uh, Momo is short for the Missouri monster, uh, which is the Missouri version of Bigfoot. And before I get into that, I will thank uh, at mermaid underscore Seth, who uh, had recommended not this one, but had recommended the story about um, a Friday the 13th ghost story uh, that was written up at one site and nowhere else. And it was this crazy great story about how on Friday, the 13th of every year, Frederick Douglass, uh, the black man who fought against slavery his entire life and died, uh, haunted white racist pieces of shit throughout history. Uh, and that just like everyone from like Charlie Chaplin to like presidents and stuff have all these stories about like how in the night, uh, Frederick Douglass on Friday the 13th would show up with flaming eyes and the sound of a million screaming people behind him. And uh, it made them less racist. And I was like, this is an incredible story. And I cannot find a single other place that talks about it, uh, which I was like, oh, that's really disappointing because that one feels timely. So thank you for your recommendation. That article is great. It's up on pathos.com. But uh which that should have been a clue. Pathos.com. Never mind. Uh, so we're back to Momo and Momo, the Missouri monster. And I'll, I'll get this one out of the way on three different television networks in my time in LA. I have played Bigfoot uh, in reenactments of Bigfoot things. One was on sci-fi, <laughs> which I felt fine about. Uh, one was on uh, uh, animal planet uh, as part of a show that was intended to be educational, and I did not know that at the time that I filmed it, and later I was like, I feel weird about that. And my last one was on the Learning Channel, uh, which that one, I was like, look, I can't make any excuses for it. Why am I trying to teach children that Bigfoot exists, and why is Bigfoot me? Uh, and why do I not have a SAG card for the number of times I've played Bigfoot? Uh, so that's upsetting. So 
everybody has their sort of own local like Bigfoot story. And the Missouri version of Bigfoot is called Momo, the Missouri monster. Uh, and the story basically revolves around he's a seven foot tall dude with a head like a pumpkin. He's very furry. But the thing that differentiates him from like other Bigfoots around the country is that he has a fucking smell. He just has this the the big feet. They have a stench about them, uh, which like a, I know that almost everything that we talk about in terms of demons or whatever has like, oh, there's this sulfur thing. And then you can tell that demons are there. It just seems like he has a cloud of farts that lets people know that something spooky is about. Uh, and so uh, it starts in 1968 in a St. Louis suburb uh, where a hairy beast grabs a four year old child playing in his backyard. His aunt runs out and goes, hey, fuck off. And the creature drops the toddler and runs off into the woods. Like that's the, that's the first one. And then in 1972, uh, on the outskirts of Louisiana, Missouri, which when researching this, the number of times people kept calling it Louisiana. And I was like, have we left Missouri? What's happening? It's the town of Louisiana, Missouri. Uh, an eight year old boy and his brother are playing with a dog in the woods. Suddenly, uh, their older sister and them uh, start screaming. They saw this giant monster and their parents come out and see the monster. And it's covered in fur. And what we have that follows this is this like um, true crime level experience over the next week of like an hour by hour breakdown of like. And then they went to the local church and then every able bodied man in the town came and brought a gun and then they searched this place and they didn't find anything. But then they searched this place and throughout uh, the story, the kid's dad just keeps like pointing at things in the distance. And he's like, there he is. And everyone runs real fast to where he was pointing. Uh, and Momo is uh, is not to be found, but. Uh, it also extends into my favorite thing that happens into one of these stories. And this almost always only happens in Jordan's stories and never in mine, uh, which is that uh, it creates this national publicity sort of thing. So like people just start showing up in mass into this small town, uh, also bringing their guns, just being like, we're going to shoot ourselves a Bigfoot. So it's not just the local. Yeah, it sounds like it, Missouri. It's, it's the most Missouri story, but also the most Louisiana story. <laughs> Uh, even though it isn't technically that. So uh, they, uh, the family refer, re, uh, refuses to come back to their house uh, and they take up residence in a local restaurant. Uh, and so their house becomes, quote unquote, the monster outpost where every morning everybody gets together with their guns and plots out where they're going to go hunt for this monster. Uh, <laughs> and so the thing that winds up being their major thrust here is that there is this one girl's backyard where there are all these footprints that are like these three toed footprints. And, and everybody who's here, who's like a hunter tracker is like, ain't never seen nothing, nothing like that. I want to shoot it so bad. Um, and the, the little girl from the story is still alive today. And a few years ago, somebody tracked her down and was like, Hey, was that real? And she was like, mostly, and they were like, they're like, what do you mean by mostly? And she's like, so I found the the tracks after the monster scared me. So that part's absolutely real. But then, and like as an adult now, she was able to demonstrate she can put her toe into the mud and create that same three pronged footprint. So she's like, you know, I made more so that people could help track it. And it was just like, hey, I know it's it's like 2015 when this interview happened. It's like if somebody does that, 
maybe push him a little bit on the rest of this absolutely happened story. But also her part of it is is at the end of this tale. So like so many people saw the big hairy person and the most Missouri part of this story is that it winds up getting dismissed uh, as not a real monster because they all agree it's definitely just some Native American running about. This is in the early 70s, like just the most racist bullshit thing you can imagine. Like, it's definitely just an engine. Let's ignore that thing that happened. And it's like, well, wait, sorry, like people f- like came here from all over the country and then we're just racist and we're like, well, let's call it a good game. Let's let's go home, uh, which is incredible. There is so it's a truly American folktale. It is the most American folktale. Oh, my God. That's that's a great note. Uh, but there is one guy, uh, a cryptozoologist who's named Lauren. Yes, it's a man's name uh, who has a website where he still claims to be tracking it. Uh, and I would report more on this. But every time I tried to open his Web page, it crashed my browser, which is its own haunted story about a man that couldn't figure out anything post GeoCities, uh, which is perhaps OK for the story of a racist fur monster idea that some children came up with that made a bunch of gun nuts go woohoo. Uh, so that brings me to my carrying into the void. Hey, buddy, don't take it personally. Everyone I have ever known is mean or at least has the propensity for cruelty at their lowest moment. And the tendrils of animalism burst through their perfect front of belonging. We all smell. We all fear. We all retreat into the woods at the first sign of humanity trying to make contact with us. We all represent cryptozoological marvels of evolution that no god could explain at this point. Because we've really fucked up the whole blueprint, you know. It's hard out there. And it's a big, scary world connected by unknown, terrifying, vast dimensions beyond our most basic understanding. Of course, they're scared of you. They should be. Their understanding represents a pebble on a beach on the back of a turtle that is slowly dematerializing into annihilation and forever oblivion, only to be reinvented again hundreds of times on the same sheet of draft paper we call existence. In summary... This is kind of a lot to take in. You're a singular achievement and a brilliant success of an exploding universe, and you deserve to be hugged before we all meet that beautiful and inevitable heat death. Take strength from your perceived shortcomings because society is almost always wrong about its beliefs. If you won't listen to me, perhaps you'll listen to the fiery burning screams of Frederick Douglass's ghosts. We are united in a thing, and you're pretty cool. Awesome. This is a good one. This is so fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's a you, fun one. Um, do you have anything that you want to plug this week? I, I, I don't have a plug, uh, but I do have a self-care. And my self-care is that uh, I took a I took a real note from you. Uh, I quit some jobs this week. Uh, oh, I, yeah. I, got, I got a gig. I almost said, I, I immediately almost said, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, too. I Thanks, brain. <laughs> Look, I, I I love Jonathan Colton more than anything in this world. But in the documentary about Jonathan Colton, he talks about how he quit his job to go follow his dream. And people all over the, all over the world write to him and they're like, hey, I'm also quitting my job to try to pursue my my Internet rock star fantasy. And he overwhelmingly is like, don't please don't please don't, because you're going to if if anyone fails, it's on me. I get it. So I understand your approach here. Uh, I got a new gig. It's a gig that I'm pretty happy with. And 
it'll pay the bills and I feel uh, comfortable for the first time in a long time. I'm about to have health insurance for the first time in years. Uh, And and my first reaction was to be like, there's so many things that take up so much of my time. Uh, And I quit too. One, I met with them and it was sort of a mutual thing and that was okay. But everything that I've left, I've also gotten to have this weirdly positive thing of like, here are non-white, non-cis, non-straight voices that I would love to have, like, take my place for at least small parts of it. And everyone has listened to me. So, like, I get to move on and replace myself with something that isn't just a younger version of me. And that feels fucking incredible, both in terms of that thing, but also in like, oh, like, I haven't had a weekend uh, in the last nine months that was mine and today I got to wake up at 10 a.m., which feels insane, and I feel so good nice. and happy, and I know you're on a similar track in what you're doing, and I think some listeners probably are, too. It doesn't take uh, a, a world-changing job to make that happen. It doesn't take something that's completely off the scale. It just takes uh, finding one centered thing. 600 little jobs. Yeah, uh, I, I've, I've done that for the last six years and I, it, it this was the first time I was like, you know what? And, and I felt bad because I was like, I'm so used to having, uh, 18 credits that I can put my behind my name of like, there's a place that I write for once a month. And I was like, I don't have that anymore. And that's not a, a slight. That means I'm moving on. So I don't know. It feels good and smart. <laughs> uh, that sounds great. I did not get a new job, <laughs> but I am going to uh my first vacation probably ever um as an adult so that'll be interesting is that gen con yeah gen con i'll be at gen con the first week of august so if any of y'all will be at gen con come say hi will you have merch there i will not have any books at all i am there as a vacationer oh wonderful so i will be playing some games going to a bunch of writing seminars and seeing friends who I haven't met in person, but have talked to on the internet a lot. Congrats on the anxiety surrounding that. But also, uh, can I just promote, uh, Jordan has, uh, at dread singles, a shirt, uh, and some related merch. Now that says I heart sad books. Uh, and sometimes I say on the internet, wow, Jordan has never sold me on something so quickly. This one is fucking angering in how many versions of it I need in my house right now. Please go buy my it. My favorite is the the, fan, the fancy font one that just says, sad books. <laughs> um, yeah, so you can find all of the sad book type paraphernalia merch that I make at voidmerch.net. That is everything is there. Um, I'm also at, at Hottest Singles on Twitter. And I post a bunch of behind the scenes writing and short stories that don't make it onto Twitter and a lot of my game design work is on my Patreon, which is patreon.com backslash dread singles. And at Gen Con, you get to reveal a couple of things that you've been working on lately, right? Yeah. So I, I was working right now. There's a Kickstarter for a game, a role playing game that I wrote for called Demon City. So if you go and search Demon City on Kickstarter right now, you'll find that um, it's already funded, but there are, a bunch of stretch goals that, which I am one of them, um, that need to be reached still. So that'd be awesome if you like horror role playing games that harken back to the days of like White Wolf and all those kind of '90s gothy horror games. It's very much in that vein. I am I'm actively funding it right now, <laughs> and I wrote about the demonic internet. <laughs>
the thing that the thing that sleeps in the darkness between your emails and your good old games downloads. <laughs> the thing that is old and is hungry. And you paid attention to the darkness and now it's going to pay attention to you. That's what I wrote about. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Yeah. If you have time, give us a rate or a review um, on Stitcher or iTunes. Every little bit helps. And remember, keep your hearts dark and true and your teeth sharp and many. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, guys. Thank you. Goodbye.